time for love. It's time for your love coach. Let's find out if you're ready for love. Here's your marvelous host, Nikki Lee. Welcome to Ready for Love Radio. This is your host and love coach, Nikki Lee. Today, we're going to talk to Diane Dreer about giving up our power to people that we love and conflict resolution. You may not think on the surface those two things go together, but we talked about this before we decided to start doing the interview, and I think you're going to see the correlation between the two of those things. It's amazing how in our personal relationships with people, sometimes we may kind of give up our power and our our power over ourselves without even realizing it sometimes. So that's that's one of the reasons I really wanted to cover this topic on the show and kind of help us, first of all, realize that we're doing it and then figure out how we can resolve this in a more healthy way. Because, I mean, my listeners know that, that I want us to have very positive, healthy relationships, and I think, I think Diane's going to really help us do that. So, Diane, I'm thrilled to have you with me today. I've been looking forward to this for a couple months now, and I'm really, really happy you're here with me today. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Well, let me tell the listeners a little bit more about you first, and then we're going to dive right into this. So, Diane is an author, consultant, positive psychology coach, and we're going to talk more about that because I want to know what that means. <laughs> She's a professor at Santa Clara University. She is a PhD in English from UCLA, an MA in counseling, and an associate certified coach credential with the International Coach Federation. Her research and literature, positive psychology, personal development, and spiritual growth has appeared in professional and popular publications. She writes a regular blog for Psychology Today, and her books include the best-selling Tao of Inner Peace, as well as the Tao of Personal Leadership, the Tao of Womanhood. I was digging into that earlier, the table of contents. Inner Gardening, that's a fascinating title. And your personal renaissance, 12 steps to finding your life's true calling. And, you know, I keep finding things I think are my true calling. I have too many callings, I think, at this point. (laughs) I need to to focus in on one, although I really think my radio show is a big one. I really do. So, Diane, like I said, I'm really happy to have you with me. Well, I am happy to be here, and you know... um, it's possible for us to have multiple callings throughout our lifetime. That's good. That's good because I, I, I have, I have a, yeah. at least two right keep now. Growing. At least two. We keep growing and developing and discovering more about ourselves and our world. So, you know, we don't want to be stuck in the same old place <laughs> that we were 15 years ago. No. <laughs> well, I've got two things that I really feel are just like missions that, of things that I just I have to do and share with people. So that's, that's awesome. Okay, so I, I can have several different callings. Good. I'm, yeah. I'm glad you confirmed that for me. I feel better. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and, well, and, and she's got a couple of different websites, and I, I, I want you to share this too because she's got – one of them is North Star Personal Coaching, and I knew there was a story behind that, so I, I want you to share that with the listeners. This is, this is a cool story. Okay. Well, the North Star, for those of us who uh, are aware of the constellations in our lives – The North Star is Polaris, and before GPSs, before compasses, 
people used to chart their course by the North Star because it's directly overhead, right above the Big Dipper. You always know where True North was if you could find the North Star and then you could navigate by it. So my coaching mission, I suppose, is one way of putting it is, is to, to help people find their own True North, their own North Star. The, the values, the goals, the vision that helps them guide their life. And that, that's what it's all about. I believe each of us has a North Star, which is where we're headed. And when we're on course with our North Star, our life works. I like that. Well, I looked at that, and I, I was thinking, you know, to, to help us get centered and focused and, and balanced. I just, I, I like that. I, I looked at that, and I'm like, ah, i got to ask. <laughs> yeah. That's very cool. And, you know, in, in the age of GPS, there's so many of those little kind of things that just seem to kind of be missing. Kind of like, kind of like when, I, when I'm on the road, GPS is all fine and wonderful, but I like to have a map because, you know, I tend to, to travel in the mountains, and you know what? You don't always have access to GPS. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Sometimes if we have all these wonderful electronic gadgets, apps, etc., we might actually give our power to navigate away to some external app. And I don't True. know if that's always a good thing. Well, and you know, GPS isn't always right. It's amazing. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I got lost following one of those one time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just I like having I you know I like having a backup. That's just that's how it is. <laughs> so. Me too. I use maps. <laughs> I like seeing it in print just in case. So, well, mm -hmm. it's funny. Last, not this past summer, but summer before that, we went somewhere, and I had been there, and I knew the, the way. And GPS had turned left, and I knew that it was right turn. And I'm like, I'm telling you, it's right. She's no, no, no. GPS is left. Said, okay, well, I'm saying right. And when when you find out I'm right, you're buying drinks. Okay, so we went left, and sure enough, it was the wrong turn. Sure. Oh. So. Uh, Whatever, but you're going to have to turn around and come back. <laughs> <You know? laughs> See? <laughs> not, not to say I told you so, but... Uh, <clears throat> you know, so. Yeah, yeah. And, and now out here, I live in California, um, they have self-driving cars. Oh, I know. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> Talk about giving your power away. Uh-uh. Oh, I don't yeah. even like being driven by, some, by another human. Forget a car. <laughs> so. Yeah. I, I, like wow. to be, I like to have, you know, I like to be steering my life, you know, forward. That's, <laughs> that yeah. gave it away. Wow. And that, you know, that goes beautifully with our topic today, doesn't it? Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. That works. <laughs> so, okay, so just to kind of set the stage for the listeners, what do we mean when we say giving away our power to the ones that we love? I think we need to explain that first to make sure people kind of – because I actually had people people ask me, and let me, let me take – because I posted this on Facebook, and I asked if people had questions about giving away our power. And this, this is what one person asked me. She said, do you mean power is as in um, – Physically, mentally, or power, like giving, like submission, biblically speaking. So, so what do we mean by giving away our power to ones that we love? Well, first of all, um, the person on Facebook was really digging deeper. Um, giving oh, yeah. away our power, we 
start off by giving it away emotionally, right? Right. But it can it can mean we give it away physically. Mm-hmm. We end up unconsciously surrendering our sense of who we are in an effort to please, satisfy, you know, make somebody else happy. And we forget who we are. We right. let that other person direct our life to such an extent that we stop doing things maybe that really we want to do because, oh, well, our partner may not like that. And we become less and less and less and we sort of diminish and lose, lose a lot of who we are. Uh, and we don't do this consciously. I mean, whenever, whenever I've fallen in love, I haven't thought, okay, I'm going to fall in love with this person and uh, I'm going to stop being myself and I'm going to mold myself into the kind of person that I think he wants me to be. This is not a conscious choice. This right. happens unconsciously. Well, you know, that's, yeah. that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to it. When, when you and I were talking, that was the reason I wanted to do this because it is something that we don't really think about as we do it. You, you just kind of... You know, you start getting interested in somebody, and you find out what they like and all this, and, and it, it does just kind of happen. It's kind of a subconscious kind of thing. You don't really think about it. You just kind of go, oh, this is what they want, and, and you just kind of start making changes in yourself to make this person happy and don't realize that you start giving up parts of yourself to make them happy, and it, and it does just kind of happen it happens gradually. Yeah, yeah, it does. And it whittles away our sense of self. And, and actually, it undermines the relationship because if that person, let's call him John or something, if that person is attracted to us, you know, me, the way I am, and I whittle myself away to try to please him, I'm going to be less of the person that he initially fell in love with. So right. going to really undermine the relationship. Why do we do this? We do it unconsciously. And there's cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, which I've studied and I sometimes use with, with uh, people. Um, we all have something called cognitive schemas, which are right. frames or lenses through which we perceive the people and the situations around us. No human being on the face of this planet is totally objective. We all see things through our own emotions and our, our emotional experience in the past. Right. And these cognitive schema, you know, make us give away our power quite often. Well, we bring our past experiences to everything that we do. You know, so, yeah. you know, and, and each one of us have different experiences and how we reacted to those and what happened to us in the past and all that and our reactions to it, all of those things, have been brought to every experience we have, you know, so it, yeah. yeah, so no, no, pe- no two people are ever going to experience anything the exact same way. It's, it's impossible. We just can't. Yeah. But, I mean, we're, we're unique. Every human being on this planet has uh, fingerprints that are unique. Even identical twins have different fingerprints. So we, we're all indeed unique by our genetic makeup, but also, um, by our experiences, as you said, and most often our childhood experiences, and the psychologists go on about this. Uh, you know, there's a psychiatrist, John Bowlby, who, a British psychiatrist who developed this whole theory of attachment, which has gotten you know, repeated recently uh, around in popular culture. 
Uh, secure attachment means that our primary caregiver or our mother, uh, in most cases, uh, our mothers were nurturing, loving, consistent, and so we developed a sense of trust and had a sense of security in our relationships. If our mothers or primary caregivers were not available, were inconsistent, cold, unaccepting, or just too busy to be around and care for us, which unfortunately a lot of people are these days, then we, we develop a sense of insecurity, disorganized attachment or insecure attachment. And our relationship schema then is defined by fear of abandonment, uh, a sense of personal inadequacy. We think that the, the person wasn't there for us because there was something wrong with us. And we need to constantly prove ourselves and earn love and live up to other people's expectations or else we fear that the person is going to abandon us. And unfortunately, a person who's grown up that way then goes out and has relationships uh, with people who are that way because that's the way that person sees relationships. So we seek out people that will replicate what we've experienced in our childhood. Well, that, that's, that's our normal. I mean, if that's what we grew up around, that's what we assume is normal. You know? That's right. We it makes, don't know any better. Exactly. That's, well, that's what we know. And, you know, we, we go with what's familiar to us. Whether it's good or bad for us, that's what's, that's what's our normal. So mm-hmm. that makes sense. Sad, sadly, we don't just look for something better than that. We look for what we're familiar with. Yeah, because we don't know there's anything better. And because underneath it all, we figure that the person wasn't there for us because there's something wrong with us. Exactly. So we have this, this sense of, you know, inadequacy. And a lot of people become workaholics in relationships. They, they work really hard to earn the other person's approval uh, right. and give away their own power in the process because they're so busy trying to please other people. Well, you know, that's, that's what one of the people said, commented on Facebook, too, was said, that you know, one of the issues too is is your self worth becomes less, and you you just assume I'm not enough, and then you know you start to shrink and make the other person look bigger and better than yourself as you're giving up the control in the relationship, which is very true. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was yeah. a great. I thought that was a great insight, also. You bet. Um and, you know, to look at examples, okay, um, let's say there's this woman named Donna who grew up with a narcissistic mother who had borderline personality disorder. So this, this poor woman had her own problems, and she wasn't there for Donna. So mm-hmm. their relationship was insecure, unstable, and Donna felt like somehow she, she just wasn't good enough. It was her fault that her mother was, you know, cold and uh, unavailable at times. And she kept trying to please her, believing that, if, oh, if I could only be better, smarter, prettier, nicer, you know, whatever, uh, more perfect, I could earn my mother's love. And uh, Donna grew up, got a job, left home, and guess what? All of her love relationships, she sought out emotionally unavailable men, trying to earn their, their love, and there's an old Beatles song that says, can't buy me love. Right. Uh, love cannot be earned. You know, it's not like a paycheck. Love is, you know, it's, it's on a totally different level. 
so that no matter how hard a person works, you can get a person's, you know, I mean, if I, if I bake wonderful cookies for somebody, if I, if I uh, you know, make their favorite dinners, they're going to like the dinners and they're going to like the cookies, but they're not going to love me anymore. doesn't work that way. Right, right. You know, it, it's amazing. <laughs> you know, it's people. People sing along to and hum "Can't Buy Me Love," but it, it, it just doesn't <laughs> sink in. The, the idea and the truth of it just doesn't sink in so often, you know. Mhm. But and by by trying to burn somebody's love, we're giving away our power. We're enslaving ourselves to a. a a schema that doesn't make any sense. Right. Sometimes our definition of love relationship doesn't come from our childhood. Um, another example, actually, of someone I, I uh, have known that I'll call Pam, uh, Pamela, uh, married a charming, charismatic salesman who was just wonderful on the outside in public. But in private, he was terribly abusive and uh, used to be emotionally abusive, physically abusive, beat her up so much at one point she had to have plastic surgery. They, wow. they divorced. And Pamela then got into one relationship after another with married men. Why? Because... For her, her schema of marriage, her schema of love was that love was wonderful, but marriage was dangerous because of her bad experience with, with her first husband. So mm-hmm. she, she got in relationships with men that couldn't marry her because they were already married, so it was a safe relationship. And she created a trap for herself and, again, gave away her power and gave away um, a lot of possibilities in her life. So it was safe for her because they were married to somebody else? That's right, because then they wouldn't marry her because, you know, her her definition of all she knew of marriage was that, you know, before you're married, it's great. The man takes you out to dinner and buys you presents and, oh, it's lovely and romantic. And once you're married, he becomes a beast and beats you up. So she figured she'd go with the romance, but she did not want the marriage. I tell you what, I got two other questions. Let me let me run these that we got on Facebook. So let me let me run these two past you. Okay. Why do we allow people to have so much power over us that it only takes a single word or a deed to just devastate us? Because we make those people our judge. Ooh. Be, because uh, we give away our power to them, we give right. away our sense of self to them, our self worth to them. And we have to keep living up to their expectations and pleasing them because if we don't, we feel devastated. You know, they can, they can judge us as unworthy by sometimes even just a look, you know, let alone, uh, you know, words of disapproval. So that's, that's why. It's because we have a schema of trying to earn love that's underneath right. it all and unworthiness and that we're letting that other piece of person judge our sense of worth. Okay, so what what leads us to put a person in that or, or give a person that position in our life? Am, am I wording that right or well? Yeah, yeah, we've made another person our judge because we, we feel so unworthy. Again, it goes back to 
we've developed a cognitive schema about relationships from a relationship we had in the past, usually with a family of origin, you know, maybe with somebody that we cared about in the past. In Pamela's case, you know, uh, her former husband. But we've had a really a bad experience where we were not, we didn't feel loved for being ourselves. Okay. And then every other relationship that we have, we set the person up in that position of judging our worth. Okay. Follow-up follow question to that. And, and the first part is simple, but then she added a little interesting caveat at the end, okay? Okay. It says, how do we protect ourselves from that, okay, but still be a loving person? That's a really important question. Um, we obviously want to stop doing this because it's not healthy uh, for right. us, and we keep repeating the same mistake. We can have the same relationship with a whole lot of different people, right. <laughs> which is what happens until we learn another way of relating. Um, the first step to, you know, to get over this negative pattern is awareness. To know what we're doing. Well, yeah. That's why we're in the show. Awareness. Yeah. Awareness. We've got to have. We've got to be able to see it in order to do something with it, and to take it out of being invisible and unconscious and just a reaction to saying, "Why am I doing this? Oh, I'm doing it again." Uh, knowledge is power, is what uh, Francis Bacon said in the Renaissance. Yeah. To develop our own awareness, we can ask ourselves some questions. So. Do I put my, when I'm in a love relationship, uh, do I put my own needs last? That doesn't mean, you know, occasionally deferring to the other person, you know, and, and taking turns. It means always. Do I always think, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll do what he wants or I'll do what she wants. Do I treat myself like a second-class citizen? You know. Great question. Great question. Yeah, or else we've got, do I feel good helping others but find it really hard to ask other people for help? Yeah. The reason is that a lot of people who, and, you know, I can relate to this, who have this old paradigm um, get real clever at helping other people, at being, you know, being there for them uh, because they, they need to be needed because we figure if they need us, they won't reject us. But if we ask for help, they're going to say, don't bother me. True. And uh, so that, that's, that's a, a real red flag, you know. Uh, do, we, do I defer to other people and say, you know, when they say, well, what do you want to do this weekend? And whatever you want, dear, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I've broken oh, up with well. people over that. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, I mean, we all have, we're unique, we're individuals, we have our own needs, you know. Um, right. I like certain foods, my husband likes certain other foods, so we know this, and when we go out to restaurants, we take turns. <laughs> Where do you want to go? Well, I want Mexican food, or I want Chinese food, or whatever, you know. Um, do we lose sight of our own goals when we're in a relationship? Right. I, I know um, more than one person 
who, you know, when she's in a relationship, it's all about the person she's, he's becomes the center of her universe. And she stops doing things. She stops seeing a lot of her women friends. She becomes just sort of gone until the relationship falls apart. And then all of a sudden, she rediscovers her favorite hobbies. She gets back in touch with her women friends. Right. Hmm. Or another question is, do I feel like I can't be myself when I'm with the one I love? Do I have to be perfect, um, you know, do I need other people's approval? Right. And if I need other people's approval, I'm making them uh, my controller and I'm becoming their slave. Well, and this giving up control isn't just in a romantic relationship. It can be any relationship you have with anybody. So, you know, we're, oh, we're, yeah. talking, about, we're talking about any any kind of a situation you're in. Don't think this is just if you have a romantic partner or something like that or you're just married. I mean, this is any sort of a relationship that you have at all. So probably should have said that at the beginning, huh? (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely right. I mean, it comes out pretty intensely in romantic relationships. But with friendships, do I have an imbalanced set of friendships? Am I always the one that helps the other people and they come to me for advice and help. And when I need help, do I feel awkward asking them for help? You know, right. Are we are we being are we are we in a balanced friendship or not? Do I feel we're, like we're, I have to earn their approval? Or family. This this can really be a situation in a family situation. So. Oh yeah, that that's that's where it all begins, and that's where it all becomes pretty wild. Uh, exactly. Right. Because people get stuck in, in behavior patterns in families. You know. Right. And then it just carries over into everything else. So. Yep. <laughs> well, in family, if you, if you let this start in family and then you try to break the pattern, holy crap. <laughs> you know, wow. Boy, could I write yeah. a book on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, there, there are people who treat their family members worse than they'd ever treat any any friend or any business associate. You know, oh, they, they never treat friends awful. or business associates like they treat family members, definitely. Yeah, I mean, there's some, at, at one point, one of my friends went to visit her mother who was ill back, back east, and my friend walked into the hospital room and said, you know, you know I, how are you doing? I, I love you. And the mother said, your hair is too long. <laughs> And started, you know, putting down her her hair, her her clothing, and all that. And I thought, my goodness, you know, um, family members feel some of them feel like they have a perfect right to insult us, and we'd never accept that behavior from a friend. And it sounds like my my current hair color. My my brother looks at me. He goes, "Is that the color you meant for it to be?" I'm like, "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> it's like, did did she show you that before she did it to you? <laughs> she, she just went on and on and on. I'm like, yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. You know, um, I mean, that's, it's funny. They feel family members, I guess, because, you know, we spent many years growing up together, et cetera. They feel like they, can, they have car wash and they can be real rude and critical of our, our physical appearance. Whereas. Yeah. They wouldn't talk that way to a business associate or to a neighbor or to a friend. 
No. <laughs> wow. No, no, no. I know. And 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 then if you say something uh, about well, you know, I, I appreciate it if you wouldn't uh, talk to me that way. And if you resent that, they'll say, "Oh, well, it's family, don't you know?" Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's supposed to. That, uh, yeah, I have a friend that, that if, if I say something, you're just being emotional. I'm like, no, you're just being rude. <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh, yeah, okay. There's something else that, that happens. If we express our needs, right, or our feelings to somebody, um, and that person is a friend, and I, I use friend, I, meaning a family member can be a friend, uh, a, a marriage partner can be a friend, or not, you know, in both cases. A friend is someone who, who cares about us, who values us. And would a friend say that to us? Something yeah, you, you, need to, us. you need to explain the definition of friend sometimes to people because you're like, okay, let me explain this to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if they insult us and criticize us, they're not our friends. And if we say, you know, I really feel uncomfortable when you do that, uh, and a friend would say, oh, gosh, I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. Um, I'll do something else, right? I mean, I didn't realize that. A person right. who is not a friend will, will insult us and saying, you're just being emotional or you're too sensitive. Right. <laughs> just had that conversation two days ago. <laughs> you know, you know, or else they, they'll say, you shouldn't feel that way, which is something that I, I, I can't stand because... Oh, I can't stand when somebody tells me that. Don't tell me how to feel. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I mean, if somebody drops, a, you know, a book on your foot and it hurts, uh, they can't tell you that you shouldn't feel hurt. Our feelings right. are spontaneous. You know, it's not a question of should. Our feelings just are. It's how we express them that we get a choice in, right. you know. But you shouldn't feel that way is, is like it's like saying you shouldn't breathe. I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> be real. <laughs> That's very true. So now once, once we acknowledge that we're doing this, how can uh-huh. we free, free ourselves from the, these negative patterns? Because I'm, I'm all over. I, I, I like to sh- focus on things on the show and, and help people acknowledge when, when they're, they're stuck in a pattern. And then I really like to show them how they can get out of and break these negative patterns. So how can they get out of a negative pattern like this? Okay. Well, first of all, um, to be our own best friend, to, uh, to say, okay, I'm my friend, you know, and I'm going to take care of myself. And I'm going to try some experiments here with the people that in, in my life. Ah. And, Okay, so the first step is to listen to ourselves and be more mindful of our own feelings, needs, and goals, uh, to be our own friends. A lot of times when we're stuck in a relationship where we're giving away our power, we get so out of touch with what we really feel that we're kind of numb. So step one is to sort of get back in touch. Take a deep breath. How do I feel? What do I want? You know? Um, Listen to ourselves at, like we'd listen to a good friend. And then, you know, that's useful information. Okay, so sure. that's the inner kind of uh, step to take back you know, our power. That's yeah. an awesome point because a, a good friend 
is going to notice what's going on. You may not listen to them, and you may not be paying attention to what they're telling you, but a good friend is going to see what's going on. They're going to see that you're giving up parts of you for either you know, family or friends or relationship or whatever, and they actually have probably been dropping hints that you're doing this, and you've probably been tuning them out. Yeah. It's something I've noticed. Because I, I, I've done this with people and go, do you not see what you're doing? And they just kind of tune it out. Yeah, because they're not ready to hear it because they're right. dumb. <laughs> right, right. So um, they, they, can, they can be that friend and, and say, you know, mindfulness practice helps. You know, John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness practice. Just, but essentially just take a deep breath and say, how do I really feel? And get to the bottom of our own feelings. Get to know ourselves. You know, have a have a good relationship with ourselves first, because that that starts, you know, improving our relationships with everyone. And then the next thing is to become like a like a scientist and experiment. Oh, so I like. It. Yeah, because the neat thing about experiments is that you, you, experiments you never fail. You try something and you always learn something from an experiment. Experiment works out the way you expect. Great. Experiment doesn't work, great, because you, you figure out, oh, that doesn't work. I'll have to try something else. Yay, experiments. So one experiment is to uh, practice asking for help. If you um, find it awkward to ask for help uh, and to express your needs with somebody, practice doing it. And it takes practice, especially if we're not used to it. It's like learning to ride a bicycle or drive a car, you don't know this right away. So, you know, you might feel awkward and it might, might feel weird at first, but, you know, to get the hang of it. And that's part of the process. The other part is to look at how the other person reacts. If your friend, family member, significant other, whatever, cares about you, they'll help, um, unless they really have a good reason not to. Uh, but if they repeatedly resent and reject you when you ask for help, when you do this, this person is not a friend, and the experiment has shown you that. Interesting. And, yeah, that can simplify our lives. You know, why, why would we have relationships with people who are not our friends, who don't really care about us? Interesting. You know, somebody, somebody posted on Facebook today that, that you know you have to always been be working to prove your love for for your significant other, and I was just like, well, that's that's true. But then, being me, <laughs> I commented and I said, well, this is true, but the way I see it, it should be mutual, and you should be both working every day to prove your love and respect for one another. It should be mutual, right? Yeah, I agree. It should be mutual. Uh, because otherwise, you know, again, one person has all the power. I also don't don't go with the word prove. I think okay. I think I think we should always be expressing our love. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, because if I'm trying to prove something, I'm making the other person my judge again. You know, and I'm oh. making that. Judge sitting up there wearing a black robe in a court of law, you know, saying guilty or not guilty, whatever. 
I don't I don't need to keep proving myself because that puts me in an insecure position. Whereas if I'm always expressing my love and my you know significant other my partner is expressing love to me then it's beautiful because you just you just get more love and you're free to express interesting i like that i was thinking show your love but I like yeah that. show your love yeah demonstrate your love um that when i show when i demonstrate when i express i have free will and it's my choice if I'm trying to prove something to somebody... Well, you're on the defensive uh, immediately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then I I'm like, giving away right. my power to that person. I'm on the defensive. You're absolutely right. And that doesn't feel the same way at all. Right. Interesting. And I remember exactly who it was. I'm going to go back and tweet my comment after we're done. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Well, it's like I hate when when people talk about intimacy and they talk about performing for the other person. I'm like, come on, can we get past the whole performing thing? You know, I just I, I just I hate when people use that word. It's like, can we can we just word it differently? Just yeah, forget yeah. performing and just just throw that word out. Come on, okay, but that's yeah, a whole other topic for a whole other show. Performing <laughs> makes the other person the audience, right? Yeah. And we're performing, and they can applaud or they can boo us. And again, we're setting them up to be our judge. Not good. <laughs> That's it. How about we just interact with one another? And, and yeah, come on, forget the yeah. whole performance. I don't know. When when somebody starts out with, with performance in the first sentence, I'm like, no, no, let's start over. <laughs> You're already on the wrong track. Yeah, yeah, you're right because the words are powerful and they contain. Again, schemas, you know, a whole schema is in there. Well, it tells you where their mindset is. You know, mm-hmm. the words, I mean, being an author, words mean a whole lot to me. So I'm, I'm listening to your words. I'm like, okay, this is where your mindset is. Let's, let's we, we back it up. Let's start over. But I know it drives people crazy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what happens when you're in a relationship and, and, the the two people let's let's make this a romantic relationship at this point and and your needs conflict with one another because this happens people's needs conflict so so let's talk about that well in a perfect relationship which is totally static in a what no <laughs> in, in a perfect relationship which does not exist that's what I was okay yes, right. <laughs> needs do not conflict in a perfect relationship but a perfect relationship mm-hmm. doesn't exist in this world. We're dynamic, we're different, we're unique. So conflict is normal. We're all individuals, as you said, you know. Um, We have different fingerprints. Uh, Conflicts are bound to arise. Conflicts aren't the problem. It's how we deal with them. Right. And most of us have limiting schemas about conflicts. (laughs) Some people are afraid of conflict. Um, and they're afraid because they fall into the same old cognitive schema. They've made the other person their judge. And so uh, they don't want to upset their partner. They're afraid of losing that person, that friend, that you know, person's love, whether that person is family, friend, or re- religious, romantic relationship. So they give in. <clears throat> and then they give away their power. And uh, the person doesn't really know, the other person doesn't know what they feel because they just surrender. Right. Uh, so that's not good. Um, most of us don't do that all the time, but the way we see conflict is, is 
we get stuck in a in a really I can't say enough about this. Uh, we get stuck in a in a cognitive schema that tells us that there are only two solutions to a, a problem: um, more conflict, either or, win or lose, all or nothing, us or them, your way or my way, True. which is the logical fallacy of the false dilemma, which reduces all the possibilities in our multifaceted world to two things, what you are demanding or wanting and what I am demanding or wanting, and there's nothing else. So either you get what you want or I get what I want or, you know, this is a cognitive trap. (laughs) It's like people don't understand you can compromise and negotiate and you can both get at least some of what you want. It's a Mm -hmm. whole amazing exciting world when you do things that way (laughs) yeah it can be really really fun to negotiate and compromise it's amazing it's also um since we're really human beings are very resourceful and creative yes Yes. Uh, we might be able to find something that's better than either what you initially want or what i initially want So, for example, I studied conflict resolution with this wonderful uh, person named Dudley Weeks who wrote a book called The Eight Essential Steps to Conflict Resolution. Mm -hmm. She says you you need to get beneath the surface and go from demands to needs to listen to ourselves and our partners and say, what do I really need? So here's an example, um, which is, I guess, more symbolic than anything. But suppose that... You and I and a group of our friends went to a mountain cabin uh, for a vacation. And on the way up the mountain, we stopped at the grocery store to buy supplies. And then we got up there. And we had brought our favorite recipes, and we were cooking dinner. And one of us was making um, lemon chicken, okay? Mm. And the other one was making lemon poppy seed cake. And, you know, and somebody else was making the vegetables and, you know, rice. And we were going to have this wonderful feast. And we both reached for the only lemon in the kitchen. Ah. Each of our recipes needed a lemon. And the grocery store was uh, 20 miles down, back down the road, and we didn't want to do that. So what do we do? Well, she Um, she eliminated my chance for a lemon pie, but okay, go ahead. (laughs) Okay. So um, I could say, oh, well, I'm conflict-averse, you can have the lemon, and my cake won't have any flavor, but, you know, your lemon chicken will be good. Or else I can be really obnoxious and say, give me that lemon. <laughs> I don't care about your chicken recipe. And then I get what I wanted. Or else we could, so it would be either or, or it would be compromise. We could cut the lemon in half. And we'd each have half a lemon, and our recipes would be half as good as what they could be. Or else we could talk to each other and say, what do you really need? And I find out that for my recipe, it says I need the lemon zest, which is the skin of the lemon that I would grate off. Right. And you need the lemon juice. So I could grate the skin off the lemon, put it in my recipe, and then hand you the lemon and you have the lemon juice and we both get what we wanted, which would be a win-win on both sides because we got to the, beneath the surface of conflict to the level of shared needs. Very true. So that there is something beyond compromise, which is 
cooperation. Well, I, I figure you, you start with what each person wants, and then you mm-hmm. dig deeper and find the answer. I mean, that you, each person's want is a starting point. Yeah. Each person, what, what I thought I wanted was the whole lemon. And then right. we dig deeper and we got the answer that, actually, no, I just need the lemon zest. So you can have, you can have the rest of it. Uh, and we're both okay. And it works. Well, and, and people need to understand that getting your way isn't the only way. You know, there, there's a whole lot of other options, and, and it doesn't make you a lesser person if you don't get the very first thing you wanted. You know, it, it's, like, it's like people have this mentality, if I don't get what I want right this minute, I lost. No! no. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I wish that, I, I think that there's something that sort of clicks into our heads when we're into conflict, and we see it as a battle, as a combat, a, right. a battle of wills. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to compromise my principles, <laughs> whatever. It's just, and then I, it gets stuck. Yeah, a long, long time ago to negotiate, and it's amazing what you can accomplish when you negotiate. Well, and when you sit down with people to brainstorm and negotiate, and and to it just and collaborate with other people, it's amazing what you can do. It just wow. Um, I mean, it, it, what happens very often is with that what you said. You know, sit down and negotiate and collaborate. You form partnerships with the people. Yes. You know, you build bridges. Uh, and all of a sudden, amazing things can happen from, from that foundation. Uh, my friend Dudley, at one point, he goes around the world doing international and also inner city, interpersonal conflicts because all conflicts have the same ingredients. You know, you've got, you've got two different uh, persons or parties and they each have conflicting needs and you get beneath the surface. So he had, uh, he was working with some people in the inner city, and the, uh, the neighborhood around downtown was very dangerous at night. Uh, the gangs were, you know, fighting, and the uh, merchants were unhappy because people didn't want to go down there and shop any, anymore after sundown because, you know, they were afraid of the gangs and whatever. And the people living nearby in the neighborhoods were were worried about their children and their property values, and so nobody was happy. Uh, so Dudley actually got all these parties together in um, the school gymnasium and said, okay, so, you know, I'd like you to write down what you need. So they did, and he said, I'm sure that you have some shared needs here. And they looked around and the Property owners, you know, were looking there at the, some of the gang members who were standing up against the back wall saying, sure, we don't have anything in common with these people and whatever. Uh, and the merchants, again. Well, what they found out was that the streets were really dark in that area and that people felt scared going downtown. And even the gang members uh, didn't like it. It was so dark because sometimes they'd end up taking a, a, a punch at each other because they couldn't tell their fellow gang members from the gang members from the other side of town. So they said, yeah, we, we do. We, we're worried about it. It's too dark there. So they, they all signed a petition uh, that went to the city council for streetlights to be installed. 
That's good we idea. could all agree on that. The merchants wanted more light. The homeowners wanted more light. Even the gang members wanted more light. Boom. And when the streetlights were installed, they had a big celebration, and they realized they could work together. So they ended up getting build, working together to build a community center and a clinic, and uh, they also built a sense of community. And guess what? Uh, the gang members stopped being, um, you know, rambunctious because now there was a community center and they could go there and work out and play basketball. And everybody thrived. The community prospered because people got together and saw through the conflict and built bridges. So these things can happen. It's amazing what happens when you can actually work together. Yeah. So... I'm not sure if we totally covered this, but what do you mean by the the phrase, conflicts are not the problem? Did we cover that? Yeah, um, but I think it's worth pointing out again, conflicts aren't the problem. Conflicts are normal. If you have, like, you know, sometimes you have a schedule conflict, right? Right, well, yeah. <laughs> if you're a busy person, that's, so so it's, it's not like that's not a problem. That's just normal. How do you deal with it can, be, can bring up a problem. Well, so you know, if basically a, yeah. if you're alive and breathing and you're interacting with another person, there's going to be a conflict somewhere, sometime. I mean, yeah. seriously. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and actually because, because we're all different. We're all unique. We have different, right. you know, needs. And conflicts can actually be the key to greater understanding. True. Well, and you know, it, it doesn't hurt you to, to need to work out a difficulty from time to time. I mean, come on, folks. Yeah, in fact. You know, I, it's a good exercise. Out, come on. It's, it's a good exercise. It helps us access our, our innate creativity and resourcefulness. You know, I like creativity. Creativity is fun. Yeah. Exercise. And and, and like collaborating and and compromising. And uh, it's an awesome creative exercise to take a problem and sit down with a couple of other people and figure out a way to, to all, like two or three different people, and find a way for everybody to get something out of a solution. It's just, it's, it can be really enjoyable to find a way for everybody to work together and make it happen. It may not be enjoyable the first time you do it because you're new at it, <laughs> but it can become fun. Yeah, it, again, it's, it's like anything else that we do that, you know, takes practice. Oh, and I know people are rolling their eyes and going, she has lost her mind again. <laughs> so, <Yeah>. But <laughs> you know what? It's they they do that with me from time to time. So. Yeah, well... If it includes everybody's needs, then no one is left out. Yeah. And instead of, you know, my shrugging my shoulders and, and glaring at the person saying, you know, you really screwed up, that's bad, it's your fault, and blaming somebody for a conflict, that's right. horrible. But instead of saying, oh, obviously, this isn't working. How can we all get together? How can we make it better? Right, right. Well, I tell you, it, it's funny. I got. I got to tell you. Lately, um, I'm, the owner of the station, I, the station with us airs, and I are, are good friends, and we collaborate on things quite a bit. And and I love the fact that I can I can send something. And go, okay, what do you what do you think about this? Do you have an idea? You know, and and we bounce ideas back and forth all the time. And I I really enjoy that because we we 
we're very in sync with things, and it's awesome to share ideas, right? Because we usually have good ideas to, you know, to brainstorm back and forth. Well, lately, it was the, his one-year anniversary as the the head of the station, and I was planning a surprise for him. And obviously, I I couldn't get his feedback because it was a surprise, and it drove me nuts that I couldn't share anything with him and say, isn't this cute or isn't this great or what do you think? And it, it seriously was driving me nuts that I couldn't share anything with him for that, that like few weeks I was putting it together. So once, once you get used to brainstorming with somebody or collaborating, it will drive you crazy if you can't do that. And I told him, I said, I said okay, now that I've done this, no more secret stuff. <laughs> so, oh. so no, more, no more of this like projects I can't share. No more. But yeah, I've, I've been collaborating and networking and doing stuff like that with people for like 30 years. So I mean, I, I love it. And mm-hmm. I really miss it when I, I don't have people to collaborate with. So, But I, I do remember the first couple times. <laughs> it, was, it was a little rough. <laughs> but like I said, once you, once you get into the habit of it and, and you look... Well, and the thing is, no matter how many great ideas you have yourself... It's amazing once you once you get the synergy going with people and you find people that you can you can brainstorm with and you can bounce ideas off of. It, it just it's amazing. It, it just it's amazing. Like I said, once you get the synergy going with certain people, it just it's awesome how cool it can be. So, and that and if and if you find beautiful. that you don't have that with some people, find other people. Find other people that you can work with that you can do that. Mhm. The creative synergy is is energizing and inspiring and yes. you just feel it you know from your head to your toes when it happens right. I think that we feel that way because that's when we human beings are at our best yeah you know yeah. what Maslow said self-actualization when we're reaching for our creative you know spirit and together create something new it is just so empowering and exciting and joyous you know that's that's life at its best. That's what we can do as human beings when we get together. Yep, it is. So tell us, tell us about your about your books and and let the listeners because you've got some. I, I love the the titles of your books and I lose the table of contents of most of them. So tell us tell us more about your books. Okay, um, my first trade book was uh, the Tao of Inner Peace, and the idea is that you know we have these conflicts and we have you know all kinds of issues, but and when we can find peace, harmony, resolve, you know, differences and find that sense of flow and energizing, inspiring sense of who we are as, as individuals, find that, that peace within, which is not static, but it's a dynamic growth, then we can share that peace and we can create peace not only within us but around us because we can come up with creative solutions. So it's, it's back to what you were just referring to based on the ancient teachings of the Tao Te Ching, which was written about 25 centuries ago in ancient China, but it's still relevant today. My uh, other book, The Tao of Personal Leadership, just takes the principles of, of Tao, you know, harmony, yin and yang, combining opposites, conflict resolution, as we've been discussing, into leadership. That uh, the, the most effective leaders are the ones who have managed to bring people together to uh, draw upon all of the resources that are around us, like an orchestra conductor, and create great harmony and new possibilities for our world. So that's how to be a leader, you know, with Taoist principles 
And then there's the Tao of womanhood. Oh, my. (laughs) (laughs) Women have um, been given certain schemas throughout history about how they should be. And now women are told, well, you can be this and you can be that and you can be it all and have it all. And the Tao of womanhood invites women to create their own definition of what it means to be a woman in today's world. That we don't have to do everything, we don't have to be stuck in somebody else's expectations, but we have a choice. There's a menu of possibilities in front of us, and again, we need to find our personal balance. Um, The yin and yang of public life, private life, uh, and put it all together in a way that really works for us, and there are examples of women who've done that. Inner Gardening is a book written um, based on lessons from medieval and Renaissance gardens and garden practice when gardening was considered a spiritual practice. People would go out and meditate in their gardens and find themselves at peace with their world. And they'd learn about life principles, seasons of their life by studying the seasons in a garden. So this book is really a, a real concoction. It has spiritual principles, garden practices, um, recipes of, you know, harvesting food from the garden, what to do, how to make dried tomatoes, for example. And it also has, you know, uh, a a whole year in my garden in in the San Francisco Bay Area with, you know, what to plant, how to prepare the soil all throughout the garden year. So it's a Practical and also, uh, I suppose, philosophical and spiritual. It's personal growth plus garden growth. My last book uh, that was, I'm working on another one now, but uh, my most recent published book is called Your Personal Renaissance. And it just uh, affirms that each one of us has at least one calling in life that defines our identity, that brings us joy and meaning. And that most of us have more than one calling because we live through many seasons of life. And, and it shows how people in the Renaissance, Michelangelo, Queen Elizabeth I, all kinds of, of interesting artists, scientists, uh, Galileo, um, and writers, Shakespeare, how they discovered their callings and how we can uh, benefit from that example with some insights from research in positive psychology because, strangely enough, uh, research in psychology, positive psychology, Martin Seligman and many of his colleagues have been doing research that's really reinforced what people knew in the Renaissance, that we need to find out where we find meaning as individuals and then go. Like I said, I was looking through the different books and, and the table of contents, and it's just a wealth of information. But Well, thank you. Interesting. And I found you while I was looking for people to review um, Judith Orlov's Impasse Survival Guide. And I I was looking at your information, and I went, she's got to come on the show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, and I I totally value Judith Orlov's work for Impasse. I've given her book away to a number of my friends now. All of you say, and say, oh my gosh, now that explains it. Now I know why I feel this way. I've worked with her off and on for about the last eight years on a whole variety of, of book launches she's done. And it's amazing the things I've learned since we've been wor- I've been working with stuff for her. So it's, that is so awesome. Well, listeners, i tell you what. I will have links to Diane's various websites and information about her books for you to take a look at. I'll also have a replay of today's show. So if you go to my website and look at readyforloveradio.com slash personalpower, 
That's where I have all the information. So, um, like I said, I'm really glad you, came on, you were on the show today. And listeners, I'll see you next time on Ready for Love Radio.